0: Okay, to begin our first afternoon, uh, Colgat Cup. Uh, begin our first afternoon with uh, thought. I would read from a Still Forest Pool because that's the book that got me interested in Aden Shah. So I uh, thought I would read some of those first teachings that uh, caused me to come to and a and special meaning for me, and I was looking through the introduction, it's Jack Cornfield and Paul Brighter, did this compilation uh, back in the early days when Ajahn wasn't spelled A-J-A-H-N, it was spelled A-C-H-A-A-N, was the original way of spelling back when Bayagiri started. And um, I thought I would just, it's a little bit lengthy, but the introduction does paint a good picture for those of you who've never been to Thailand. And it's a really wonderful, kind of some imagery and just leading into hearing and witnessing Longpor Cha's teachings. So we'll see how far we get, and I'll just start at the very beginning. Dedicated with deepest gratitude to the Venerable Ajahn Chah Subato, our teacher, guide, and friend, to his many devoted students and disciples, especially Ajahn Sumedho, his teachers Ajahn Tongrat, and Ajahn Mun, and to the teachers before them, the lineage of centuries of those in the forest who realized through their simplicity and genuine practice the freedom and joy in the teachings of the Buddha, and dedicated to our parents for their care and support along the way." And an opening quote from Ajahn Chah, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha." This is the introduction. I think it's by Jack Cornfield. It's not actually signed. Suppose you were to go to Asia in the 1980s in search of living teachings of the Buddha to discover if there are still monks and nuns practicing a life of simplicity and meditation, supported by alms food, and dwelling in the forest. Perhaps you had read descriptions of the Buddha himself wandering with his monks in the forests of India, inviting men and women of good families to join him in cultivating wisdom and universal compassion, inviting them to live the simple life of a mendicant. to to dedicate themselves to inner calm and awareness. Would you find this way of life alive today, 25 centuries later? And would its teachings still be applicable and relevant for our modern society, our modern minds? You would land at a modern airport near Bangkok or Colombo or Rangoon. In your taxi, you would drive through Asian city streets, passing cars, crowded buses, sidewalk vendors of tropical fruits. Every few blocks you would see the golden pagoda or spire of an urban Buddhist temple. But these are not the temples you have come to search for. They contain monks and nuns who study the ancient texts, who can chant and preach, and from this they teach. But to find the simple life of dwelling in the forest, the meditative living with robe and bowl, as old as the Buddha himself, you would have to leave the cities and their temples far behind. If it were Thailand, the country with the greatest number of monasteries and monks. You would board the train at busy Hualampong Station, leaving early in the morning for the provinces of the far south or northeast. So that would have been uh, going by train. The first hour's journey would take you clear of the urban sprawl beyond the houses, businesses, and shanties backed up along the railway track. Vast plains of central Thailand would roll by the green rice bowl of Southeast Asia. Mile after mile of paddy fields checkerboarded into lots by small dikes between fields and rhythmically divided by canals and waterways. On the horizon of this sea of rice, every few miles in four or five directions you would see islands, dense clusters of palm and banana trees. If your train rolled close enough to one of these palm islands, you would see the glint of an orange-roofed monastery and cluster of wooden houses on stilts that make up a Southeast Asian village. Every settled village, whether with 500 or 2,000 residents, has at least one monastery. It serves as the place for prayer, for ceremony, as the meeting hall, and for many years also served as the village school. Here is the place where most young men of the village will ordain at age 20, For one year or three months to learn enough of the ways of the buddha to ripen into mature members of their society the monastery is probably run by a few older simple and well-meaning monks who have studied some of the classic texts and know enough of ceremonies and of the basic teachings to serve as village priests this monastery is an integral and beautiful part of village life but it is not the temple you have come to search for Your train heads north toward the ancient capital of Ayutthaya, filled with the ruins of magnificent temples and broken palaces that were sacked centuries ago in the periodic wars with neighboring kingdoms. The spirit of these magnificent ruins remains in the enormous stone Buddhas imperturbably weathering the centuries. Now your train turns east for the long journey toward the Lao border across the reaches of the Khorat Plateau. Hour after hour, the land passes still you see rice paddies in villages but they gradually become sparser and poorer the canals and lush gardens of central thai villages mango trees and tropical greenery turn into a simpler landscape houses are smaller village monasteries still gleam but they are too smaller they they too are smaller and simpler here an older more self-sufficient way of life is preserved You can see women weaving hand-loomed blankets on their porches while rice farmers work and children tend the water buffalo in wet gullies alongside the railroad tracks. The rural countryside in these lesser developed provinces holds much of what remains of the tradition of forest monks and nuns. It still has regions of forest and jungle, small thickly covered mountains, and unsettled borderlands and for many centuries it has supported forest monks and monasteries dedicated to the preservation and realization of the enlightenment of the Buddha. For the most part, these monks do not function as village priests, nor do they teach school, nor study and preserve the language of the ancient written scriptures. Their intent is to live fully and realize in their own hearts and minds the insight and inner peace taught by the Buddha. If you left the train and made your way by bus or hired car down some dirt road to such a monastery, one of dozens in northeast Thailand, what would you find? Would the teachings and way of practice be relevant in the 1980s? Would the insight and awareness training, uh, would the insight and awareness training address the needs of one coming from a modern and complex society? So That's the 1980s, modern and complex. You would discover that many Westerners had come before you. Since 1965, hundreds of Europeans and Americans like you have come to visit and learn in the forest. Some came to study for short periods and then returned home to integrate what they learned into their household life. Some came to train more thoroughly as monks for one, two, or more years and then return home. Another group found life in the forest to be a rich and compelling way to live and these remained in monasteries to this day. For each of these groups, the teachings have spoken directly to their hearts and minds, offering them a wise and conscious way to live. At first, the way may seem almost easy, deceptively simple. But upon attempting to put the Buddha's way into practice, one discovers that it is not so easy. Yet. Despite the effort it takes, these people feel that nothing could be more valuable than to discover the Dhamma or truth in one's own life. From the moment of your entry into a forest monastery like Wat Pa Pong, the spirit of practice is evident. There is the stillness of trees rustling and the quiet movement of monks doing chores or mindful walking meditation. The whole monastery is spread over 100 acres, divided into two sections for monks and nuns. The simple, unadorned cottages are individually nestled in small forest clearings, so that there are trees and silent paths between them. In the central area of the Wat are are the main teaching hall, dining area, and chapel for ordination. The whole forest setting supports the atmosphere of simplicity and renunciation. You feel that you have finally arrived. The monks who live in those monasteries have chosen to follow this uncomplicated and disciplined way of practice called dutanga. The tradition of forest monks who voluntarily choose to follow a more austere way of life dates back to the Buddha, who allowed a supplementary code of 13 special precepts, limiting the robes, food, and dwellings of monks. At the heart of this lifestyle are few possessions, much meditation, and a once daily round of alms food begging. This way of life spread with the rest of Buddhism into the thick forests of Burma, Thailand, and Laos, places filled with caves and wild terrain ideal for such intensive practice. These ascetic monks have traditionally been wanderers, living singly or in small groups, moving from one rural area to another, and using handmade cloth umbrella tents hung from trees as their temporary abode. Practical Dhamma teachings from one of the greatest forest monasteries, Wat Papong, and its master, Ajahn Chah, have been translated and compiled and are offered to the West in this book. Ajahn Chah and his teachers, Ajahn Tongrat and Ajahn Man, themselves spent many years walking and meditating in these forests to develop their practice. From them and other forest teachers has come a legacy of immediate and powerful Dhamma teachings, Directed not toward ritual Buddhism or scholastic learning, but toward those who wish to purify their hearts and vision by actually living the teachings of the Buddha. As great masters emerged in this forest tradition, laypersons and monks sought them out for teaching advice. Often, to make themselves available, these teachers would stop wandering and settle in a particular forest area where a Dutanga monastery would grow up around them. As population pressures have increased this century, fewer forest areas are left for wanderers, and these forest monastery preserves of past and current masters are becoming the dwelling place of most ascetic and practice-oriented monks. Wat Papong Monastery developed when Ajahn Shah, after years of travel and meditation study, returned to settle in a thick forest grove near the village of his birth. The grove, uninhabited by humans, was known as a place of cobras, tigers, and ghosts, the perfect location for a forest monk, according to Ajahn Chah. Around him, a large monastery grew up. From its beginnings as a few thatched huts in the forest, Wat Papong has developed into one of the largest and best-run monasteries in Thailand. As Ajahn Chah's skill and fame as a teacher have become widespread, the number of visitors and devotees has rapidly increased. In response to requests from devotees throughout Thailand, over 50 branch monasteries under the guidance of abbots trained by Ajahn Chah have also been opened, including one near Wat Papong, especially designed for the many Western students who have come to seek Ajahn Chah's guidance in the teachings. So now there's almost 400. In recent years, several branch monasteries and associated centers have been opened in Western countries as well, most notably the large forest Wat at Chithurst, England, run by Abbot Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Chah's senior Western disciple. Ajahn Chah's teachings contain what has been called the heart of Buddhist meditation, the direct and simple practices of calming the heart and opening the mind to true insight. This way of mindfulness or insight meditation has become a rapidly growing form of Buddhist practice in the West. Taught by monks and laypeople who have themselves studied in forest monasteries or intensive retreat centers, it provides a universal and direct way of training our bodies, our hearts, and our minds. It can teach us how to deal with greed and fear and sorrow and how to learn a path of patience, wisdom, and selfless compassion. This book is meant to provide guidance and counsel for those who wish to practice. Ajahn Chah's own practice started early in life and developed through years of wandering and austerity under the guidance of several great forest masters. He laughingly recalls how, even as a child, he wanted to play monk when the other children played house and would come to them with a make-believe begging bowl asking for candy and sweets. But his own practice was difficult, he relates. And the qualities of patience and endurance he developed are central to the teachings he gives his own disciples. A great inspiration for Ajahn Chah as a young monk came from sitting at his father's sickbed during the last days and weeks of his father's life, directly facing the fact of decay and death. When we don't understand death, Ajahn Chah teaches, life can be very confusing. Because of this experience, Ajahn Shah was strongly motivated in his practice to discover the causes of our worldly suffering and the source of peace and freedom taught by the Buddha. By his own account, he held nothing back, giving up everything for the Dhamma, the truth. He encountered much hardship and suffering, including doubts of all kinds, as well as physical illness and pain. Yet he stayed in the forest and sat, sat and watched. And even though there were days when he could do nothing but cry, he brought what he calls a quality of daring to his practice out of this daring eventually grew wisdom a joyful spirit and an uncanny ability to help others given spontaneously in the thai and lao languages the teachings in this book reflect this joyful spirit of practice their flavor is clearly monastic oriented to the community of men who have renounced the household life to join Ajahn Chah in the forest Hence, frequent references made to he rather than he or she, and the emphasis is on the monks. An active community of forest nuns also exists rather than laypersons. Yet the quality of the Dhamma expressed here is immediate and universal, appropriate to each of us. Hajan Shah addresses the basic human problems of greed, fear, hatred, and delusion, insisting that we become aware of these states and of the real suffering that they cause in our lives and in our world. This teaching, the Four Noble Truths, is the first given by the Buddha and describes suffering, its cause, and the path to its end. See how attachment causes suffering, Ajahn Chah declares over and over. Study it in your experience. See the ever-changing nature of sight, sound, perception, feeling, and thought. Understanding the impermanent, insecure, selfless nature of life is Ajahn Chah's message to us. For only when we see and accept all three characteristics can we live in peace. The forest tradition works directly with our understanding of and our resistance to these truths, with our fears and anger and and desires. Ajahn Chah tells us to confront our defilements and to use the tools of renunciation, perseverance, and awareness to overcome them. He urges us to learn not to be lost in our moods and anxieties, but to train ourselves instead to see clearly and directly the true nature of mind and the world. Inspiration comes from Ajahn Chah's clarity and joy and the directness of his ways of practice in the forest. To be around him awakens in one the spirit of inquiry, humor, wonderment, understanding, and a deep sense of inner peace. If these pages capture a bit of that spirit in their instructions and tales of the forest life and inspire you to further practice, then their purpose is well served. So listen to Ajahn Chah carefully and take him to heart, for he teaches practice, not theory, and human happiness and freedom are his concerns. In the early years when Wat was starting to attract many visitors, a series of signs was posted along the entry path. You there, coming to visit, The first one said, be quiet. We're trying to meditate. Another stated simply, to practice Dhamma and realize truth is the only thing of value in this life. Isn't it time to begin? In this spirit, Ajahn Chah speaks to us directly, inviting us to quiet our hearts and investigate the truth of life. Isn't it time that we begin? Part one, understanding the Buddha's teachings. Ajahn Chah asks us to begin our practice simply and directly with the understanding that the Buddha's truths of suffering and liberation can be seen and experienced right here, within our own bodies, hearts, and minds. The Eightfold Path, he tells us, is not to be found in books or scriptures, but can be discovered in the workings of our own sense perceptions, our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. To study these in an immediate and wakeful way and cultivate mindfulness is the path of insight prescribed by the Buddha, the Buddha. It has been kept alive and followed by those monks, nuns, and laypeople inspired to devote themselves to practice in the centuries since. Ajahn Chah speaks as a contemporary living representative of this ancient teaching. His wisdom and mastery have not come through study or tradition, but are born of his years of practice, his diligent effort to employ meditation to calm the heart and awaken the mind. His own practice was inspired and guided by the wisdom of several great forest masters a generation before him. And he invites us to follow their example and his. Look at what makes up your world, the six senses, the processes of body and mind. These processes will become clear through examination and an ongoing training of attention. As you observe, note how fleeting and impermanent are each of these sense objects which appear. You will see the conditioned tendency to grab to or to resist these changing objects. Here, teaches Ajahn Chah, is the place to learn a new way, the path of balance, the middle path. Ajahn Chah urges us to work with our practice, not as an ideal, but in our everyday life situations. It is here that we develop strength to overcome our difficulties in a constancy and greatness of heart. It is here, he says. In each moment, that we can step out of our struggle with life and find the inner meaning of right understanding and with the peace of the Buddha. So this is the first talk, The Simple Path. Traditionally, the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps, such as right understanding, right speech, right concentration, and so forth. But the true Eightfold Path is within us, Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. These eight doors are entire path, and the mind is the one that walks on the path. Know these doors, examine them, and all the Dhammas will be revealed. The heart of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Give up clinging to love and hate. Just rest with things as they are. That is all I do in my own practice. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing. Resist nothing." Of course, there are dozens of meditation techniques to develop samadhi and many kinds of vipassana, but it all comes back to this, just let it all be. Step over here where it is cool, out of the battle. Why not give it a try? Do you dare? The Middle Way. The Buddha does not want us to follow the double path, desire and indulgence on the one hand, and fear and aversion on the other. Just be aware of pleasure, he teaches. Anger, fear, dissatisfaction are not the path of the yogi, but the path of worldly people. The tranquil person walks the middle path of right practice, leaving grasping on the left and fear and aversion on the right. One who undertakes the path of practice must follow this middle way. I will not take interest in pleasure or pain. I will lay them down. But, of course, it is hard at first. It is as though we are being kicked on both sides. Like a cowbell or a pendulum, we are knocked back and forth. When the Buddha preached his first sermon, He discoursed on these two extremes, because this is where attachment lies. The desire for happiness kicks from one side, suffering and dissatisfaction kick from the other. These two are always besieging us. But when you walk the middle path, you put them both down. Don't you see? If you follow these extremes, you will simply strike out when you are angry and grab for what attracts you without the slightest patience or forbearance. How long can you go on being trapped in this way? Consider it. If you like something, you follow after it when liking arises, yet it is just drawing you on to seek suffering. This mind of desire is really clever. Where will it lead you next? The Buddha teaches us to keep laying down the extremes. This is the path of right practice, the path leading out of birth and becoming. On this path, there is neither pleasure nor pain, neither good nor evil. Alas, the mass of humans filled with desiring just strive for pleasure and always bypass the middle, missing the path of the excellent one, the path of the seeker of truth. Attached to birth and becoming, happiness and suffering, good and evil, the one who does not travel this middle path cannot become a wise one, cannot find liberation. Our path is straight, the path of tranquility and pure awareness, calmed of both elation and sorrow, If your heart is like this, you can stop asking other people for guidance. You will see that when the heart is unattached, it is abiding in its normal state. When it stirs from the normal because of various thoughts and feelings, the process of thought construction takes place in which illusions are created. Learn to see through this process. When the mind has stirred from normal, it leads away from right practice to one of the extremes of indulgence or aversion thereby creating more illusion, more thought construction. Good or bad only arises in your mind. If you keep a watch on your mind, studying this one topic your whole life, I guarantee that you will never be bored. We'll read one more. Ending doubt. Many people who have studied on a university level and attained graduate degrees and a worldly success find that their lives are still lacking. Though they think high thoughts and are intellectually sophisticated, their hearts are still filled with pettiness and doubt. The vulture flies high, but what does it feed on? Dhamma is understanding that goes beyond the conditioned, compounded, limited understanding of worldly science. Of course, worldly wisdom can be used to good purpose, but progress in worldly wisdom can cause deterioration in religion and moral values. The important thing is to develop super-mundane wisdom that can use such technology while remaining detached from it. It is necessary to teach the basics first, basic morality, seeing the transitoriness of life, the facts of aging and death. Here is where we must begin. Before you drive a car or ride a bicycle, you must learn to walk. Later, you may ride in an airplane or travel around the world in the blink of an eye. Outward, scriptural study is not important. Of course, the Dhamma books are correct, but they are not right. They cannot give you right understanding. To see the word hatred in print is not the same as experiencing anger, just as hearing a person's name is different from meeting him. Only experiencing for yourself can give you true faith. There are two kinds of faith. One is a kind of blind trust in the Buddha, the teachings, the master, which often leads one to begin to practice or, or to ordain. The second is true faith, certain, unshakable, which arises from knowing within oneself. Though one still has other defilements to overcome, seeing clearly all things within oneself makes it possible to put an end to doubt to attain this certainty in one's practice. So I'll leave it there and perhaps ask Lungpa for any questions. Uh, Reflections that if that brought up any.
1: Yes, the I mean just the uh, description of of uh, leaving Bangkok and getting on the train and whatnot. Um, It's been years since I've got on a train (laughs) and gone up to Ubon. I usually fly up, (coughs) (coughs) although uh, during COVID I drove up, which was really. Quite nice to sort of you know driving through the <coughs> the countryside and the villages and you know, but yeah it's very evocative of of uh, uh, a uh, a kind of you see the forest tradition <coughs> really arose out of yeah um, kind of a peasant culture and, and uh, so there's a Um, I mean, these are um, oftentimes highly uh, intelligent, highly accomplished people, but they're not, maybe they're not educated in the same way that, that uh, uh, either people in Bangkok as Thais or, or uh, people in the West are, but, but they're, uh, their ability to learn and apply themselves to a task and that task being um, and learning dhamma, and learning a, a kind of a, a path of, of 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 the Buddha's way, uh, is really uh, yeah, quite um, unparalleled. So that was something that that kind of came up and and. Uh <coughs> Just that sense of of uh, maybe trying to access a a level of simplicity and directness that the teachings of Ajahn Chah exemplify and and kind of highlight. <coughs> Another is is the uh, in the, one of the teachings that, that uh, um, Jack uh, actually, uh, or perspectives or attitudes that, that Jack mentions is, is uh, a, a quality of daring. And uh, <clears throat> I was actually at Ajahn Charles Kutthi when there was a group of um, Western teachers and practitioners, uh, senior kind of students from uh, the the early days of Insight Meditation Society. It was probably 1980 or something like that, that they came and visited as a group. Or maybe 17, maybe 79 before I just, um Anyway, there was a <clears throat> uh, it was uh, it was fair seventy nine eighty something like that. fairly early on that Genshō was still very much uh, present and teaching and very uh, uh, vibrant. And uh, <coughs> and one of the questions that <coughs> one of the people asked was. Um, what quality did did, uh, did ajahn Chah think he possessed uh, that allowed him to realize the, the, the teachings and and, uh, and and ajahn Chah, i remember him is of course he laughed and sort of said i, I, I don't have any Special qualities or, or abilities, but maybe, maybe it was because I dared to do it, uh, and uh, just that sense of <laughs> uh that 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 sense of yeah, being willing to, you know, not submit to yeah, doubt and fear and um, moods and and hesitations and proliferations and all of the things that we do get caught up in but just yeah dare to dare to give myself to this teaching that's and so this was uh, in essence what, what he was was saying but I think it's a you know it's worthy of reflection that sense of yeah sense of if you dare to do it uh, the results will definitely
0: come the second thing you said was that long like
1: Dare to try. Dare to try. Yeah, dare to to do it, dare to try.
2: (coughs) Yes, um, something that struck me particularly was at the beginning of that section where he specifically multiple times calls out fear and aversion. And I sometimes reflect on that fear is not like a separate hindrance. And I'm just curious if there's any reflection on, um, it was very specific in in multiple times that he called those two things out together and um, if there's any thought um, about about why and any thought about uh, how it's really not a separate hindrance or anything in that neighborhood of topic. Yeah, because it feels like fear is kind of cross many things, right? It's I don't want this. I do want something else. It's and so just I was just curious as to if there was any meaning in him. He had grasping on one side very clearly, but he called out those two, and I don't often hear it that way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what I would say <coughs> is that. Uh, <clears throat> uh, oftentimes when, when uh, especially as a teaching device, you're pointing to um, <clears throat> like a middle way uh, as a path through opposites, uh, and <clears throat> so that desire and grasping and clinging are on one side, and say, fear and aversion can be lumped together as another side. So you're not parsing everything out at that point. All you sort of say, there's these two tendencies that the mind has to go into extremes, and, and you can parse out all the different details later, uh, but these are the tendencies. I mean, one can also <clears throat> make a case for fear being a cause for 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 desire as well, uh, um, but you know it's just it's it it's it's a, a to me it's just a, a rhetorical device or a simple teaching device in order to sort not getting too caught up in the details at this point, but important to <coughs> take note of the fact that uh, <coughs> fear is is and especially in the. Yeah, oral teachings of the uh, of the uh, of the forest masters. Uh, generally, in in uh, <coughs> kind of like Buddhist psychology, uh, fear is lumped together with delusion. Uh, <coughs> but the uh, <coughs> um, and the primary. Uh, uh, or root defilements, or greed, hatred, delusion. Uh, so, just sort of, uh, in, 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 when you're sort of putting things on a basic fundamental level of, okay, here are these two extremes that the mind will, will go to, you definitely want to acknowledge in, in fear and, and recognizing that in, in practice, uh, one of the things you're, you're going to have to work with is fear. And, and it's better to be saying it up front rather than, than uh, letting it lurk in the back which is what fear likes to do and likes to lurk. Bung <laughs> have you ever heard anyone say I would like to put an end to confusion I would like to put an end to ignorance instead of saying I would like to put an end to suffering? Uh, well, I mean, confusion and ignorance are certainly suffering, um, but that's in, <coughs> in terms of, <coughs> and it, it goes into a whole other big discussion of of uh, like the Buddhist teaching, the Buddhist use of language, in that uh, the the word dukkha I- when it I uh, mean it gets gets pretty narrow when it's translated into English <coughs> and uh, <coughs> whereas dukkha in 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 say in its in its form of of uh, um, uh, a fundamental concept in 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 Buddhist uh, the teachings of the way the Buddha taught, it's, it's much more kind of global in the sense of, yeah, dissatisfaction, discontent, dis-ease, um, stress. Um, and so that you, when you have something like, say, the word stress, then that can be, mean just about anything that's uh, uncomfortable. Or even sometimes translated as imperfection, but that that gets into a bit conceptual but but yeah you know, but those but it but it you know as opposed to suffering, which tends to be um you know like a a, a pretty strong emotional <coughs> word, but it's you know it, it works because it's just basically it's just sort of you're trying to put a pin on things as as a, and and realize what, say, Buddhist jargon
0: is pointing to. Uh, a lot of gratitude for these teachings. And just remember reading that first talk, and when he says, do you dare? And I think, I thought, yes, yes, I dare. I'll do it. I'll do it. Just... Uh, and here you are. Planting those seeds. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you could just say a little bit, too, about uh, walking meditation. So we're going to be practicing together. For this three weeks in the main area, and uh, say sitting in this hall, and then there's walking meditation areas. So out down towards the B2, there's a number of flat areas. Out the Black Rock Trail, there's a number of flat areas. There's flat areas uh, near the up above the Gold Buddha. There's two walking meditation paths. If you go to the Gold Buddha and turn left, walk up those steps and turn left. There's two walking meditation paths up there. And of course, there's uh, the parking lot. Sometimes people have done meditation in the lower parking lot in the past. So uh, there is a number of walking meditation areas to, uh, to complement our, our sitting practice. So uh, whenever it stops raining, so it's not, it's not raining now, we've got some blue sky, so uh, can do some walking meditation or sitting in here. We've got a three-hour chunk for this afternoon being 2.15 to 5.15. And uh, anybody who wants the, the tea time, just because this will be the first full day of winter retreat, full group style practice, the, the tea time is, there's no Q&A session, but it's in, uh, we just have tea in silence. Can You can actually sit in here and have tea, or you could, uh, people might be still meditating in here and not having, choosing to not have tea. You might want to sit, try sitting straight through to evening puja or or sitting a, a little bit longer at that period of time. Uh, sometimes people study or read more teachings at this period of time. Sometimes people are uh, also working on memorizing chanting when there's a, a lot more open schedule like this. So like at the tea time or or after that, before after the group sitting and before the evening puja, there is that period of time. So uh, there is a number of, Skillful ways to to use the time, but just to put it out there that there are a number of areas to do walking meditation in order to uh, augment the sitting practice that we're that we're doing around here. So uh, may you be well. Go for it, fatty <laughs> butt. Bye.